the greatest man who ever lived. I'd also like to share some of the greatest books ever written. Let's see if I can do both, because I think it's so important. How do we apply the Lord Christ to all areas of life? By focusing on the person of Christ. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Here's a poem written over 100 years ago, end of the 19th century. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village where he worked as in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or a home. He didn't go to college. He never visited a big city. He did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his garments, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as that one solitary life. There is no doubt that Jesus Christ is the greatest man who has ever lived in all of history. He changed the world forever. When he was born, he transformed the very way we measure time. He turned aside the river of the ages out of its course and lifted the centuries off their hinges. His birthday, his incarnation, touched and transformed time. Now the whole world counts time as before Christ, B.C. and A.D. Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. Jesus Christ is the central figure of history. And even though there's a secular attempt to try and get rid of these terms and speak about B.C.E. before the Common Era, and so on, and CE common era. It's still using the same dating system. It's still 2023 this year, isn't it? Uh, 2023 what? 2023 years since the birth of Christ. I mean, he divided time. Personally, I think we should always use BC and AD. More books have been written about Jesus Christ than any other person in history. You go to the Library of Congress, one of the biggest libraries in the world, which I've been to, and far and away, the most popular person in history in terms of books written on him is Jesus Christ. A far distant second, otherwise, Professor Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation. And there's a very, very distant third after that and so on. But Jesus Christ is far and away no close competition. The man that most books have been written about should make people think. So we can use this in evangelism, in apologetics. If people are trying to discount Jesus, well, why is he the one who's the center around which our calendar system is dated? How is it that more books have been written about him than any other person in history? Why is the biggest religious system on earth built around belief in his deity and his resurrection? The world before Christ was a world without hospitals, a world without charity, a world without respect for the sanctity of life. Hospitals were an innovation of Christianity. Hence, the healing symbol of a cross represents hospitals. Well, have you noticed at the end of Ronald Bush Common, we've got the Red Cross Children's Hospital. I ask you to look for that Red Cross. They have redone the building, repainted, and they are trying to hide the cross. They're now trying to put an H to symbolize the Red Cross Hospital. Well, when I did my driving <coughs> license, which was quite a while ago, um, H symbolized helicopter landing pad. Are they seriously trying to get rid of the Red Cross, even at the Red Cross Children's Hospital? They're trying. There's an attempt to get rid of every Christian symbol in our society, and we need to fight to keep them there. The nursing profession was founded by Christians such as Florence Nightingale out of devotion for Jesus Christ. I've been to Florence Nightingale Museum. I must say, what a dedicated disciple of Christ. What a phenomenal woman. What a call that she had. And there's a lot that we can learn from Florence Nightingale. 
who went to the Crimean War, who saved lives, who documented the vast majority of soldiers dying in the British Army were not dying from enemy action or from wounds, but from easily preventable diseases because of lack of basic hygiene, basic common sense. And she really shocked the world with her statistics and her research and her books on nursing. One of history's greatest humanitarian movements, the International Red Cross, was founded by Christians. I've been to the International Committee of the Red Cross, ICRC, museum and headquarters in Geneva. And what's the first thing you see as you move into the museum? The Bible of Henry Dunant. And scriptures given in German, English and French. And Italian. Heal the sick. Preach the gospel. Go and do likewise. Good Samaritan. All these scriptures. This is an, Before you've seen anything else, in a secular museum, they have to acknowledge the Red Cross was founded in response to scriptural injunctions. And the Red Cross has done phenomenal work. Phenomenal. What they have done in bringing healing... You know, the Red Cross is the Swiss flag reversed. How wonderful. Switzerland doesn't bomb other countries. Switzerland sends medicines and bandages and medical aids to other countries. They're involved in all the conflicts and wars in the world, but not as a belligerent, bringing the healing of Christ into insane conflicts, even what's going on right now in Ukraine. Hospitals were responded, were produced, as were nursing profession, as was also the Red Cross, in response to the scriptural injunctions to care for the sick and the suffering. When last did you see nurses kneeling at the beginning of their shift like this? I remember seeing that in hospital in Rhodesia when I was a patient, Kenny Stones, back in 1972. I was quite surprised to see these nurses kneeling in prayer before the beginning of their shift. And, uh, wow. Christians like Dr. Louis Pasteur have fueled some of the greatest practical advances in medicine. Pasteur has probably saved more lives than any other individual in history through his inventions. The whole concept of charity was a Christian innovation. Benevolence or kindness to strangers was unknown before Christ. The teachings and example of Jesus Christ have inspired the greatest acts of generosity, hospitality, self-sacrifice, and service for the poor, for the sick, for the needy over 2,000 years. I mean, would you like to give someone else as an example of who's inspired more? You know, do people get inspired by Darwin or Marx to care for the poor or the sick or to go out of the way to care for the suffering? I mean, it's, it's a ludicrous, balachalic suggestion because nobody but Jesus Christ has inspired such self-sacrifice. Before the advent of Christianity, every culture practiced slavery and human sacrifice, every one of them. Even the highly esteemed Greek and Roman civilizations, slavery and human sacrifice, which was common amongst pagan religions. The Aztec Empire in Mexico, the Inca Empire in Peru, engaged in slavery, ritual rapes and mass human sacrifices. Ripping beating hearts out of people to make the sunrise tomorrow. Suti, the burning of widows on the funeral pyres of the husbands, was common practice in India before the missionary William Carey arrived. Slavery was eradicated as a result of the tireless efforts of Christians such as William Wilberforce and Dr. David Livingston. Respect for life, respect for liberty is a fruit of Christianity. Those people today who are promoting abortion, euthanasia, pornography, they're not offering us progress. They're offering us regression, a return to pre-Christian paganism. There's nothing new or advanced or positive or progressive about killing babies. That's what they did through all of the centuries before Christianity. Similarly with pornography and other kinds of perversions. Those were normal before Christianity came. What we're seeing is a post-Christian culture where they're trying to abandon Christianity and go back to paganism. This isn't progress. By the way, in South Africa, we've got this ridiculous term of the lichters, which means the enlightened ones. So there are people who say, we're for lichter, we're for enlightened. Was they Vakramta. You know, the Vakramtas are people like me who believe we should actually maintain laws to protect, for example, name of God from blasphemy and Sundays from desecration and so on. So we're Vakramta. But they Vakramta. So it reminds you of the Enlightenment, which led to the French Revolution. They chopped to 40,000 heads. And uh, it also reminds one of Lucifer, the light bearer. And the Illuminati. Funny how you've got these terms, the Verlichter, the Enlightened, the Enlightened Ones, the Enlightenment, the Illuminati, Lucifer. 
Nothing progressive about that. The positive impact of Jesus Christ on the world cannot be overstated. Everything from education to human rights, from public health to economic liberty, the things we cherish the most, many of the blessings we take for granted. All of these can be traced back to the spiritual and cultural revolution began by Jesus Christ. The irrefutable fact is that Christianity gave birth to modern science. The scientific revolution began with the Protestant Reformation. The Bible played a vital part in the development of scientific discovery. Every major branch of science was developed by a Bible-believing Christian. The Bible essentially created science and has been well documented in What If Jesus Had Never Been Born by Dr. James Kennedy and, and Jerry Newcomb and also in uh, Professor Alvin Smith's book, How Christianity Transformed Civilization. When we get into a car, start the engine, turn on the lights, drive to a hospital, receive an anesthetic before an operation, have an effective operation done in a germ-free environment, we need to remember we owe all of that to Jesus Christ. Every school you see, every school, whether it's public, private, religious or secular, is a visible reminder of the religion of Jesus Christ. So is every college and university. So says Dr. James Kennedy. What is written over the doors going into Harvard University? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. I think they've forgotten it. The phenomenon of education for the masses has its roots in Christianity. The pursuit of the knowledge of God in a systematic, philosophical, in-depth way gave rise to the phenomenon of universities all around the world. It was the Christian faith that gave rise to the very idea of higher learning. Most of the languages of the world were first set down to writing by Christian missionaries. That includes even the Cyrillic script, the entire Cyrillic alphabet for the Russian and Ukrainian people comes from the missionaries Cyril and Methodosus. The first book in most languages of the world have been the Bible, overwhelmingly. Christianity has been the greatest force for promoting literacy worldwide throughout history. A study done in the 1900s, uh, in the 19th century and 1800s, was that Catholic countries had about 30% literacy. Protestant countries had about 95 to 98% literacy. Hindu and Muslim countries are down to 5%. Animus countries, zero. That's the way it works. And honestly, if you go in Africa alone, countries with the highest literacy had Protestant colonial powers, like <coughs> German, Dutch, and English. Uh, Catholic powers, which were like France, Spain, Portugal, their literacy rate will be half that of Protestant countries. Another interesting point is if you look at Africa in terms of colonial powers, those countries in Africa that have a multi-party system or have an opposition party or have free press almost all have got Protestant colonial past. Those are the Catholic colonial past. They're the ones who one-party state, one-party controls the media. There's no opposition parties allowed. You're sort of like Zelensky's Ukraine. The Christian missionary movement in the 19th century pioneered tens of thousands of schools throughout Africa, Asia, the Pacific Islands, providing education to countless millions, even in the remotest jungle, giving the gift of literacy to tribes which had never before had a written language. There is no doubt that Jesus Christ was the greatest teacher the world has ever known. When he spoke, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority. He didn't need footnotes. He didn't need to be quoting sources of authority. He was the authority. From the very beginning, Christians were establishing schools. Amongst the many innovations in Christian education was that these Christian schools taught everybody, including girls and women. Formally educating both sexes was a Christian innovation. The Greeks and the Romans, before the birth of Christ, did not formally educate girls. Girls got no education. Only boys from privileged classes obtained an education. A very small select group, like Alexander, received an education from Aristotle. Or, what, or did he get Socrates? And so it was private tuition for a few privileged boys from the ruling classes. Average person got no education. The girls got zero education. Christianity revolutionized education by making it available to all classes and both genders. St. Augustine observed Christian women were better educated than pagan male philosophers. 
This is our heritage from the beginning. Every branch, every level of education was pioneered by Bible-believing Christians. Graded levels of education was first introduced in the 16th century by German Lutheran layman, Johann Sturm, who believed that this system would motivate students to study because they'd be rewarded by advancing to a next level. Sturm introduced the gymnasium in Strasbourg, 1538. This is why we have a gymnasium in Paul. It's a gymnasium for the mind. Kindergartens were first established by Frederick Froebel. Froebel was a devout Christian who believed that the world of man and the world of nature were connected. The son of a Lutheran pastor, Froebel developed the idea that the school would allow young children to grow under the care of an expert gardener, a teacher in a children's garden, a kindergarten, which is a German term. So even though we're kindergarten, even though we've anglicized it, it's pointing back to its Lutheran roots. He had often helped his father in a family garden. His idea was that we should have a children's garden, preschool. Education for the deaf was also pioneered by Christians. Charles Leepe developed a sign language for formally teaching the deaf in 1775. Before Jesus Christ, human life in the Greek and Roman Empire was extremely cheap. Infants born with physical defects such as blindness were commonly abandoned to die in the wilderness. In Greece, blind babies were cast into the sea. Those who survived blind infancy or who became blind later became galley slaves, and blind girls were commonly assigned to a life of prostitution. However, Jesus Christ showed particular compassion for the blind, healing many blind individuals during his ministry on earth. When a Roman persecution of the church ended in the 4th century, Christians established asylums for the blind. In the 19th century, Louis Braille, a dedicated Christian who had lost his eyesight at age three, developed the world's first alphabet to enable blind people to read with their fingers. Raised dots. Sunday schools were begun by Robert Rakes in 1780 to provide boys and girls from the poorest homes with the gift of literacy and the riches of the scriptures. Now, Sunday school originally was not babysitting for Christian children in church so that the adults could attend the adult service and they could attend children's service. That was not Sunday school. Sunday school was Sunday afternoons to reach kids from unchurched families with a literacy program. Now, I've seen this at work. Uh, when I've been a guest speaker in Birmingham, I remember in 2005, at the end, uh, and also in Wales, uh, back um, also in 2014, so on, seen this at work in some of the churches where virtually everyone at church is involved in Sunday school in the afternoon. And in the afternoon, they bring in children from immigrant families, and they, they might be from Muslim backgrounds and so on, but they, they offer English language learning. And so the children come to school to learn English or something along that line, and it's run by the church as an outreach program to the unchurched people. Now that's what, in fact, Sunday school started out as, as an outreach program of the church on the Sunday afternoons after they've had Sunday morning worship. Sunday school wasn't in competition parallel with the Sunday morning service. All ages tend to Sunday morning service for most of church history. It's only in the latter half of the 20th century that you suddenly had Sunday schools popping up at the same time as the Sunday morning service and having age-segregated services for Sunday morning worship, which is not something you will find in the Bible or even in church history. It's a very modern innovation. So Sunday schools were an outreach. The first universities grew the monastic missionary centers which had discipled Europe. Now, we know the monasteries became very corrupt and bad by the 14th, 15th centuries, which is why Martin Luther spent a lot of time attacking the monasteries. But the monasteries initially were not so bad. In fact, the monasteries initially were exceptionally good. Monasteries at the early part of the Middle Ages were actually the missionary centers which evangelized Europe. People like Francis of Assisi came through it. Columbo, who evangelized Scotland, came out of the monasteries. Patrick came out of the monasteries. So the monasteries initially were actually very good. They were the missionary centers. It's out of those monasteries that the first university started. The first university lectures were the missionary monks who had collected the books, accumulated the libraries, copied the manuscripts. They were uniquely equipped for advanced study. And so monasteries became universities. Monks became university lectures, which is also true for the Reformation. Martin Luther was first and foremost a monk who became a university lecturer and professor, and it was out of that work uh, that the Reformation developed. So monasteries initially had a good intention. 
Most universities began as Christian schools, including Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Oxford, Cambridge, Heidelberg, Basel, Christian universities. The greatest invention in the field of learning, the printing press by Johannes Gutenberg, was also fruit of the Christian faith. And the first book to be printed was, of course, the Bible. Interesting, in 1999, as we were heading into the Y2K and all the hysteria about the new millennium, and you had to live through it to believe it. I mean, it was really hysteria, mass hysteria. heading into, And I don't think the world has seen parties quite like that. Um, uh, probably not even the end of the Second World War did they get as berserk as they did with... Uh, uh, turning from 1999 to the year 2000. But all the newspapers and magazines were trying to determine who's the man of the millennium. And do you know who they chose the man of the millennium? Almost uniformly across all the print media? Johannes Gutenberg. It makes sense from their perspective. He's the father of print technology, of mass communication technology. Therefore, uh, you'd understand that the mass communications industry would look at Johannes Gutenberg. He's the man of the millennium. Okay. And what was the first book he published? You weren't meant to ask that, but uh, it was a Bible. The very name university testifies to its Christian origins. Uni veritas, one truth. Uh, the average pagan doesn't even believe there's truth, let alone one truth, let alone that can be known. So I would advise our pagan friends to start an aversity, a diversity, a polyversity. But university should be Christian, by virtue of the name. Isn't it time that teachers and lecturers and professors took an in-depth look at the greatest teacher the world has ever known, the greatest book ever produced, the faith which inspired and pioneered every branch of education and science? Take a few more basic things. The word restaurant comes from Jesus' promise in Matthew eleven twenty-eight: Come unto me all your labor and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. And it was that first restaurant founded in Paris in 1766 that placed the whole verse from Matthew 11:28 in bold letters outside this first public establishment dedicated to providing meals in a pleasant atmosphere. And over the years it got abbreviated to restaurant. The fact that our week consists of seven days is a test with the fact that God created the world in six days, resting on the seventh. The practice of Sunday being our day of rest dates back to the Christian tradition of honoring the first day of the week first day as the Lord's Day, attest with the fact Jesus Christ rose from dead on the first day of the week. Because God began his work of creation on the first day of the week, and God began his work of recreation on the first day of the week. And the church was born on the first day of the week, Pentecost. Every time a newspaper publishes a date, it is a testimony to the centrality of Christ. Even when atheists write a date, even when the Marxists marched under 1917 in the May Day Parades, they were acknowledging the centrality of Christ, unwittingly, of course. <coughs> when we say 2023, we're acknowledging that Jesus Christ is the central focus of history. This is the year 223 AD, in the year of our Lord. That's a pretty powerful witnessing tool right there. <coughs> the very word goodbye comes from the parting prayer, God be with you. Hence the unusual spelling of it. Now, if you go to Austria today, the people greet you with Grüß Gott, greetings in God. In Switzerland, it's Grüzi, which is an abbreviation of greetings in God. So you'll see in many cultures, there is their Christian heritage is in plain sight, hidden in plain sight. The very word holy day comes from, or holiday comes from, holy day. Funny, in the old days, holidays or holy days meant people were at church more. These days, holidays mean, oh, I don't need to go to church. We closed down the Bible study because it's the holiday. And we've kind of gone the other direction, which is a bit weird. The Bible, particularly the Ten Commands, laid the framework and the legal foundations of Western civilization. For example, Christianity and law. The very first statute, the very first written restriction of powers of government was Magna Carta, 1215. Written by a pastor, Stephen Langton. Thoroughly saturated with scriptural principles. The Bible has inspired the greatest literature. Just think, can you imagine Shakespeare, Dickens, or Jane Austen without the Bible having permeated the entire worldview? The greatest art. What are you thinking? About Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci. I mean, what's the theme? Biblical themes. The greatest example of architecture? Well, there's no question. 
the cathedrals. The cathedrals are the greatest examples of architecture. And in all of history, has there ever been anything to compare with these magnificent churches and cathedrals built over the centuries? Many times the grandfather may have laid the foundations, but it's the grandchildren who will finish the steeples. It was a three-generation project. At least it could take three generations of average cathedral, and these were no prefabs. You could go to buildings that are still standing a thousand years later, and more. And by the way, this was produced during the Dark Ages. Glass windows like this. When they speak about the Dark Ages, you have got to be kidding. There's nothing dark about the Dark Ages. The Middle Ages, when Europe was Christianized, evangelized, discipled, when the universities were built, when the cathedrals were built, when Gothic architecture was being developed, when the stained glass windows were just uh, lighting, and they call that the Dark Ages. You know who called the Middle Ages the Dark Ages? Voltaire. Voltaire was the one who, because he was part of the Enlightenment, and the Christian era he called the Dark Ages. When Europe was converted to Christ, that's the Dark Ages. And now he is bringing about the Enlightenment, which led to the French Revolution, and ultimately the Bolshevik Revolution, and so on. But that was the Enlightenment. You can see what is going on when people use words like that. This doesn't look particularly dark to me. This looks pretty enlightened. If you've been to Durham Cathedral, absolutely phenomenal, absolutely staggering and stunning. And all these were built during the so-called Dark Ages. So don't believe the nonsense when people come to you with this, uh, the Middle Ages with the Dark Ages business. There's a lot of evidence that it was anything but. St. Paul's Cathedral, absolutely stupendous, magnificent. This was built by Christians centuries ago. Well, most people in the world were living in mud huts, thatched roofs, and so on. The Bible inspired the age of exploration, the age of world missions, the rule of law, the separation of powers, checks and balances, representative government, the sanctity of life, and so much more that we take for granted. Christianity introduced a respect for life and liberty that was completely unknown before the coming of Christ. In the ancient world, the teachings of Jesus Christ halted infanticide, killing of infants. Liberated women, abolished slavery, inspired the first charities, inspired the first religious organizations, created hospitals, established orphanages, founded schools. In the medieval times, or Middle Ages, Christians built libraries, invented colleges and universities, dignified labor, converted the barbarians. In the modern era, Christian teaching has advanced science and inspired political, social, and economic freedom, has promoted justice, and provided the greatest inspiration for the most magnificent achievements in art, architecture, music, and literature. Christianity has been the most powerful agent in transforming society for the better across 2,000 years. No other religion, no other philosophy, teaching, nation, or movement has changed the world for the better as much as Christianity has done. I mean, just compare the good achieved by Christianity in 2,000 years with the catastrophic chaos caused by secular humanism, socialism, and Marxism, totalitarian states, just in the 20th century alone. Or compare that with the catastrophic shambles caused by Fauci and the CDC uh, during the lockdown lunacy of 2020 into 2021. Jesus Christ is the greatest man who ever lived. The Bible is the greatest book ever written. The Bible is the number one best-selling book in all of history. It is estimated that well over 30 million Bibles and 100 million New Testaments are printed every year. I remember uh, some imbecile saying that Harry Potter was outselling the Bible. Not on its best year. Harry Potter was a brief phenomenon, but I mean, nobody's going to be reading Harry Potter a thousand years from now, just for starters, except maybe as a joke. Uh, about how stupid people could have been in the 21st century. But really and truly, when people come up with, you know, this is outsold the Bible. Um, nope, never. In fact, I've challenged the people who produce in the newspapers, the journalists, the best-selling list. I say, why is the Bible never on top of best-selling list? It always outsells the best-sellers. Yes, well, of course. Um, it's best-selling books except the Bible, because that would be boring, because it would always be the Bible's best-selling. Well, why don't you put that in a footnote, like... Best-selling books, with the exception of the Bible, which is always the best-selling book. I mean, that would be more honest. But then I noticed, how is it possible that James Kennedy and James Dobson are never in the best-selling list? John MacArthur and so on. I mean, they sell millions of copies of some books. 
doesn't that outnumber these books that are often on the vessel? Oh, yes, well, but they're religious books. Or why didn't you say, with the exception of religious books? How do you determine the best-selling books? Now, in America, they determine the best-selling books by 10 selected bookshops in New York and Los Angeles, San Francisco. Forget the Midwest, forget the Christian bookshops. In South Africa, how do they determine best-selling books? Five exclusive bookshops. They will not have Crumb Books, Scripture Union, or any other Christian. They, they exclude the Bible, exclude the Christian books. So already you can see it's, it's stacked. But there can also be other good secular books out there, but that don't make it because they're not part of the politically correct. The best-seller list in many ways, just like the... I don't, I don't know if it's popular anymore, but when I was growing up, it would often be the, the top 10 or top 20 or so in music, and the countdown going from 20 down to the best. And it turned out to be a marketing scam. It was just a way that the record companies were promoting what they wanted to promote. It was very massive statistics to make this the best-selling. They found out now there's a lot of things where, for example, a company, to get their book or their CD uh, pushed into best-selling, they buy like 100,000 or something on the first day by the company to resell. Now, they're not sold yet, but, but that's bad too. They sold 100,000 the first day. Yes, it was to themselves. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's a marketing ploy, and this has been proven. It's been a standard marketing strategy. So there's a lot of, when they come out with well, the Oscars, Oscars has got to be the biggest fraud out there. You know, it's a mutual back-scratching operation. It's a bunch of millionaires handing gold statues to one another. I'll give you a gold statue this year, you give me a gold statue next year. And uh, it's, it's not even films these days that anyone's even watched or intends to watch. It's to promote films that they want to promote. And if you've got something about some transgender, homophobic, uh, non-binary, whatever, that's bound to get the Oscar that year. It's, it's all about politics now. It's not about what's popular or what's effective or what's uh, incredible. Um, you can be sure that some of the Oscar winners of the past would not get it these days, not under the present work administration. The Bible has been translated into more languages than any other book in history. There is no close second. You cannot even come close in any other book that can compete to the Bible in terms of the amount printed, how often it's read, how much it's read, how much it's quoted, or how many languages it's translated into. Wise men still see Christ. He became like us, like that we might become like him. Shortly after my conversion, 1977, I wrote this hymn, this poem. He became like us, that we might become like him. He was rejected, that we might be accepted. He was condemned, that we might be forgiven. He was punished, that we might be pardoned. He suffered, that we might be strengthened. He was whipped, that we might be healed. He was hated, that we might be loved. He was crucified, that we might be justified. He was tortured, that we might be comforted. He died, that we might live. He went to hell, that we might go to heaven. He endured what we deserve, that we might enjoy what only he deserves. There is one appointment that one of us will miss. In fact, none of us will be able to even late for this appointment. It is appointed unto man once to die and after that, the judgment. We do not know when or under what circumstance our lives will come to an end. But we do know that when we die, we will stand before Almighty God, our Creator and Eternal Judge, and we will have to give an account of our lives to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. You only have one life, it will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. You recognize who said that? C.T. Studd. The cricketer who gave up cricketing when he was the top cricketer of the greatest empire of the world at that time, and he gave his whole life for career and missions. First to China, then to India, then to Africa. We need to work out our priorities in light of eternity. We need to invest our time, our talents, and our treasure into those things that are going to last for eternity. What's going to last for eternity? The people of God, the word of God, the kingdom of God, these are what are ultimately important. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. In the light of eternity, knowing that you are going to stand before the Creator and the Eternal Judge, you need to review your life's work. 
your family relationships, your habits, and your activities. Imagine on that great day when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of your life. Do you really think that any of us will be thinking, I should have watched more TV? Really? I was too generous. I should have held on to that grudge for longer. I was too spiritual. I spent too much time studying the Bible and praying. I was too evangelistic. I sacrificed too much for God's kingdom. I was too forgiving. Do you think anyone will think like that on the day of judgment? In the shadow of the throne of God? Will any of us regret praying too much, studying the Bible too intently, being too forgiving, being too generous, sacrificing too much for God's kingdom? Not likely. If you knew that you would die next year, imagine that you were told you've got one year to live. What would you do differently this year? We need to work out our priorities in the light of eternity. Some of us have had that experience. Some of us have been told you've got so much time to live. I've had the experience of having evil people point AK-47s in my forehead and in my stomach saying, you will die. Tomorrow we will shoot you. Yeah, you know, you've got one more night on earth. What are you going to do with that time? I've sat with my wife in the oncologist's office where they said that my wife had definitely no more than four, maybe five years to live. That was in 2010. And other times when I put it less and less and so on. 2020, I remember them saying, you maybe have four or five months to live. Now, praise God, doctors can be wrong. God can overrule. But it's a sobering thing, and it's not a bad thing, actually, for all of us to sometimes say, you may have a whole lot less time than you think you've got. To stop us from wasting so much time. Realizing... Time is precious, valuable. We don't know how much life we get. We don't want to waste so much. And to squander it in what some cocaine-sniffing, pedophile drug addicts in Hollywood wants you to spend your attention on, you know, well, Harvey Weinstein says, you should spend your time watching this. No. Um, We've got better things to do with our time than that. If I was to ask you what is the greatest need and priority of your life, what would you think? Academic achievement? Promotion? Marriage, political advancement, success in business, money, career, evangelism. When our Lord Jesus was asked, what is the greatest command? He replied, you shall love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and with all your heart. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the greatest commandment. So if it follows, if that's the greatest command, what is the greatest sin you could commit? The greatest sin is to fail to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because that's our highest priority. Failure to love God is a root sin that leads to all other sins. You cannot truly love your neighbor unless you first love God. And the scripture makes clear that even more serious than the bad we've done, evil as that is, is the good we could have done but failed to do. On the day of judgment, Matthew 25, our Lord Jesus describes the day of judgment in these terms. Not in terms of you drank alcohol, you smoked cigarettes, you did drugs, you were homosexual, Bad as those things are, that's not the way the Day of Judgment is spelled out in Matthew 25. Red letter edition, Jesus says on the Day of Judgment, you did not give food to the starving. You did not give water to the thirsty. You did not give clothes to the naked. You did not care for those who were sick. You did not visit those in prison for their faith. In other words, you did not care. Depart from me, curse in the lake of fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So the Lord Jesus describes the Day of Judgment in Matthew 25, in terms of sins of omission, good things we fail to do. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. I think we should put a lot more attention on sins of omission. What really matters? To know God and to make him known. To know the word of God and the God of the word. Our greatest priority is to love God above all else and more than anyone else. That is what really ultimately matters in the light of eternity. Now, there are three ways you can reject Christ. Blatantly, like atheism, denying God, openly rejecting. That's the Vladimir Lenin, Mao Zedong, Samora Michelle, their way, the hardcore atheist, Richard Dawkins. But there's also apathy, knowing the truth, but not caring enough to do something about it. That's a subtler, but it's also a way of rejecting God. I'd say most people in the world are not the blatantly rejecting God, but they're just apathetic. 
Apathy is a curse. But then there's also procrastination. There's people who know the truth, who are convinced, who care, but don't actually get around to making that decision. So a lot of people are not meaning to reject God, but they're effectively doing it by procrastination. Procrastination is the thief of time and a grave of opportunity. We don't need to worry, I think, anyone attending a biblical worldview summit is hardly in the first category. <laughs> Nobody here wants to blatantly reject God, or we wouldn't be here. But there's a danger that apathy or procrastination could eat into our lives and ruin some of our best intentions. It is not enough to know the truth of the gospel in our heads. We need to believe in our hearts. With all our heart. It's not enough to know about God. We need to know him personally. We need to have a personal relationship with him. We need to trust Christ, love him, follow him, obey him. Our Lord Jesus Christ commanded his disciples to preach the gospel of repentance and forgiveness of sins to all nations. And biblical repentance involves far more than feeling sorry for our sins. Remorse doesn't necessarily equal repentance. I've led drunkards to the Lord on the streets, had them weeping away. And the next day they're back in the alcohol and they can't even remember. There is drunkard's remorse. But it doesn't mean they're going to abandon their drunkenness. Sadly. Sometimes we're remorseful because we were caught. It's not the same thing as repentance. Repentance involves three things. Conviction, contrition, and conversion. Conviction, a change of mind. I stop justifying my sin. Contrition, a change of heart. I stop loving my sin. I start hating it. Conversion, a change of life. I stop practicing and reveling in the sin. I turn my back on it. I change my life, my habits, my behavior. You need to respond to the gospel of Christ in repentance and faith. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. You do not want to settle for just knowing the truth in your head and failing to respond wholeheartedly with trust and obedience in your heart. Jesus Christ came to this world in order to die for our sins. We need to respond in repentance and faith. We need a change of mind, change of heart, and a change of life. And this is what biblical repentance is all about. Very well laid out by Anthony Stunder when he is explaining on Saturday about biblical true repentance. Wise people still seek Christ. Salvation is found in no one else, but there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Therefore we also, since we surround by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. In army we did weight training. In the GCC, our folks will do weight training. We trained every day in a South Africa nine months training, running with our rifle. We didn't do PT, just with PT shorts and, and uh, so on. We ran in our boots and long trousers with our webbing with full water bottles and rifle. That was normal. Sometimes you'd have a fuss bait when you'd have to have full kit Helmets on. But you always ran with your rifle. I mean, what's a good running if you don't have your rifle in your hands? Uh, so uh, we ran with a rifle, and, then, and we had water bottles and kittens on in our boots. Do you know, after that training, when it was PT shorts, tackies, no rifle needed, can you imagine how we just like, this is just so easy, this is just unbelievable, it's like flying, when you could run in just your PT gear, not carrying a hulking great big rifle, not running in your boots. It's like, wow. So weight training is great. Whereas afterwards, it makes, you know, as the slogan was, train hard, fight easy. And uh, when you hike or run with a backpack of World Missionary Press Arabic scriptures, uh, it, it really does enhance the training. You get more out of it. Now, my wife was a phys ed teacher. She said, you get the same benefit walking the distance as you do running it but you get it running more faster so whether you run around the common or you walk around the common well of course if you walk around the common it'll take you about 35 minutes if you run around the common you might do it in 12 minutes uh, so the point is and by the way we had to do in a South Korean army with rifle we had to run uh, a 2,4 kilometer which is what the common is 2,4 kilometers we had to run 2,4 kilometers with a rifle and boots on in under 12 minutes 
And I believe that's what they, requ they require without running with any weights. The karate dojo where Christopher got his black belt had to run around the common in 12 minutes. I thought, without a rifle? <laughs> in tackies? Without boots? <laughs> that doesn't sound so impressive. The SADF did have a higher standard for training. But now, imagine you're running with pack of rocks or ball and chain around your ankle or maybe there's some razor wire wrapped around your ankle and you're trying to run. Wouldn't it be better just to get rid of all that stuff first and then you can run faster and easier? But how many of us in our normal life, we've got backpacks of rocks, bitterness, resentment, unforgiveness, grudges, unforgiveness, sin. You've got this backpack of rocks and you've got tangled things of bad relationships and things, you know, got this ball and chain going. Do you know, running with all that is more than a pain. But when you get rid of it, it's like freedom. And this is the thing that's just so extraordinary. Why do we spend so much of our life dragging around all this extra baggage? All this unrepented, unconfessed sin, all this absolute trauma that's just holding us back. Let us cast aside every weight and the sin which easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance a race that's set before us. And so I think there's just so much in this passage. And when we're involved in a Great Commission course, we are training for missions. And uh, you don't want to carry more weight than you have to. And you don't want to have anything around your ankles at all. Certainly not barbed wire. Well, this is one of our answers to skeptics. We'll have this message uploaded on the Frontline Mission Essay.org website. Any questions, comments, criticisms or complaints? Yes, Ryan. Can you please describe the Red Cross's work in Dresden in 1945? 1945, the final months of the Second World War, there were hundreds of thousands of refugees fleeing from the East from the horrific atrocities being committed by the Red Army as they were sweeping towards Central Europe. And Dresden, which was like the Venice of the North, a beautiful, beautiful city on a river, uh, un, uh, unprotected. There was no anti-aircraft defences because it was an open city. There was no military significance in the city. It was just beautiful museums, art galleries, and, and all of that, churches, and lots of hospitals which were overflowing with refugees. And uh, the Royal Air Force came something like 700-odd bombers at 10 o'clock, dropped incendiaries. They dropped big blockbusters that first blew out the big windows uh, and roofs, and then they dropped hundreds of thousands of incendiaries, which caused fires inside all those buildings. Two hours later, a thousand bombers came with the Royal Air Force, while the firemen and the rescue workers and the Red Cross were busy helping the wounded and the, uh, the survivors of this first horrific aerial attack. Two hours later, they hit them with a bigger air raid. In the morning, while the fire brigade still trying to deal with things, the Red Cross trying to deal with those survivors, the US Air Force came with a thousand bomb raid and hit the people during day. And the escorts, like the Mustangs, were literally at low-level machine gunning the people, pulling their carts, the women, children, refugees fleeing on the roads, and were machine gunning civilians on the ground. And this was done because Stalin, Joseph Stalin, asked Winston Churchill and Franklin Delano Roosevelt to target Dresden because it was receiving a lot of the people that were fleeing the Red Army. And uh, this was one of the worst atrocities. The Red Cross published this. It was a scandal in the world, especially in Sweden, Switzerland, other neutral countries, that on Valentine's Day, the RAF and USAAF could target civilians in a totally undefended civilian city, open city, uh, where there were hundreds of thousands of people. And it, it's probably one of the worst bombings ever. Vastly more people died in Dresden than in Hiroshima and Nagasaki combined from the atom bombs. Uh, and and it, it's, it's staggering. But uh, the Red Cross put out some very, very shocking uh, pictures and reports on what happened uh, to Dresden. And, um, yeah, I mean, those things, not many people want to read about it, but the Red Cross was brave and bold, and they, they without fear or favor, gave the truth to all sides. And, by the way, they were delivering parcels, medicines, letters, things like this to... By the, not just hundreds of thousands, ultimately they delivered millions of parcels and letters to prisoners in all prison camps, except they were never allowed access to the Soviet Red Army communist prison camps, nor were they allowed access to the American prisoner of war camps. Eisenhower wouldn't let the Red Cross in there. He wanted all the German prisoners in the US camps in the Rhineland to just die 
and uh, wouldn't allow medicines, food, nothing, not even food, not even water to go to them. And civilians were shot trying to take food and water to the prisons. Other losses document that. So, Crimes and Mercies by James Bach, who's a French-Canadian journalist, uh, has uncovered a lot of these details in his Crimes and Mercies book. Uh, also, on the, on the bombing of Dresden, uh, that would have been the book by David Irving, was the best expose on what happened in, in Dresden. Other losses and crimes and mercies best on what happened in the Allied prison camps. And the Red Cross throughout the whole war was without fear or favour trying to help prisoners from all sides. And uh, they very uh, effectively tried to help. But they weren't allowed access to the American or the Soviet-controlled prison camps. But everyone else let them have access. Is that what you had in mind or was there something else? Yes, sir. Okay. Yeah. I think there's a lot of ammunition. By the, by the way, there's a, a track that I've got that tackles this whole thing. It should be here. Yes, I've got it in the track here. So you can get this as a track. You've got an English and an Afghans. The greatest man ever lived. It's a, it's a threefold. That means you can open it up like this, like that. It's easy to distribute, but it's a... This, this is our, the message I've just given. I've, I've designed it for a Christmas message, got a little carried away, but um, uh, it's, it's a straightforward, Christ-centered message to get people to think about who Jesus is. Any other questions, comments, complaints? Yes. Um, just a statement on how many times the Bible has been translated. They, yes. The most accurate... Uh, the word guess for how many languages there are is based directly on how many times the Bible has been translated. So even secular um, language websites and stuff, they'll say that their their number is based on how many times the Bible has been translated, which is like 5,500 around. Okay, what do you think of as the ethnologue? Wycliffe Bible Translators, started by William Cameron Townsend, they have got the ethnologue. They've got the most detailed list of languages and Mm -hmm. dialects worldwide. I think that they've come down to something in a region of 7,000-odd different languages and dialects, of which there are so many thousand Bibles fully translated, New Testaments, and and then Gospels all the way down. Uh, Basically, what it works out to now is 98% of the world's population has access to at least a Gospel. Most would have New Testament and Bible um, in their language. But that 2% represents lots of groups of a few hundred here and there. Now, I remember somebody asking Wycliffe, is it worthwhile putting so much effort into taking a language to a people where there might only be 300 people in a tribe? And um, <laughs> uh, this Bible translator asked, how many Huguenots came to South Africa in 1688? Actually, about 300. 300 Huguenots came to, to South Africa in 1688. How many have they grown to be? Basically, a quarter of the total Afrikaans population today come from those 300 Huguenots. So you can't just think of the people at this moment. You've got to think of their descendants. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's a good point. And also, Jesus did expressly say to every nation, every tribe, every language. So um, the ethnologue, they have, the, the Wycliffe's done more work than anyone else to find out what language they are and to try and break them all down and to reach them and to provide the first book in their language. So it's, it's a very magnificent example. By the way, uh, one of our missionaries, Chris Linden, who was um, in prison with me in Zambia in 1987, he's a Wycliffe Bible translator. Um, he's worked in Mozambique. He's lost his wife. I think he's lost one of his children. Um, but he's still working in the field. We've got a few people who've ended up in, in Bible translation. Uh, they start with us as short-termers, uh, doing field work across the border. But uh, the Wycliffe and New Tribes Mission are two of the finest missions out there because they're working to get the Bibles into the local languages. And I, I can't think of a more foundationally excellent thing. But this also is something that convinced me to abandon the pre-mill, pre-trib dispensation we're living in last day's business because if you believe that the world's coming to an end in the next three, four years, you won't go and do Bible college training, learn another language, and spend 15 years trying to translate language and the Bible into that language if you really believe that we're living in the last few days. So I would prefer to have the attitude of work long-term, 
let the Lord find us busy. Because I think we get too tripped up by, if we think we don't have enough time, then we give up. So when I was a pre-mill, pre-trip, dispensational, rapture fever person, date setting and all that, I couldn't think of marriage, children. There's not enough time. But the fact that we've got this mission house here, we've been here over 21 years. In fact, I've got a family, which started working on a family 32 years ago. Um, that's because I, I broke out of the pre-mill, pre-trip dispensation. I, I'd done too much date setting and I thought, I'm becoming like the boy who cried wolf. Uh, you know, Lord's coming at the end of yeah. Just forget all that. Focus on the Great Commission. When the Great Commission is fulfilled, the Lord will return. So let's make us coming soon by doing everything we can to work to fulfill the Great Commission. That, to me, makes more sense. So, yeah, but wonderful work done by Wycliffe and New Transition, which is why they're hated by, new, by uh, the National Geographic. National Geographic accused Wycliffe of cultural genocide. You know, they're trebling the people's life expectancies, giving them medicine, eyeglasses. And, but it's cultural genocide because now um, they're not headhunting, not eating the neighbours, not doing body piercing. So the culture's died. So it's cultural genocide to evangelise people and treble their life expectancy. Give them a gift of literacy, a way of salvation in Christ, eternal life. Cultural genocide. I mean, the terms used these days, it's bizarre. Okay, any other comments, observations? Just a, just a final comment, if someone uses uh, the, the BCE before the common era, you can say, now does that stand for before Christ empire? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We should resist that sort of thing. When people try that, you know, making funny comments or refusing to, uh, uh, there's so many things you can do to be politically incorrect. And just putting AD, BC might trigger some liberal, but the point is it encourages the good guys, it irritates the bad guys. Win-win. Any other comments? Observations? Yes? I just really love how that God is like the center and everything that just points back to Jesus. And mm. like even the bad things, you can like trace them back. And it's like really amazing. It is. And that's the point. Don't feel embarrassed about being a Christian at college, university, in your workplace, wherever. And when people try their nonsense, you can just know, they obviously don't understand much of what they're talking about. And you don't, you don't want to be patronizing, you don't want to be insulting, because how would they know? I mean, we were also deceived. I believed a lot of this junk as well myself. Uh, but the more we read, the more we learn, the more we can realize, you know, it's a great thing just to point out to people, the average person hasn't even thought, what are they saying when they say goodbye? What does a holiday mean? What is, uh, do you know what breakfast comes from? Breaking the fast. And, and there's so much biblical imagery and terms in all of our society. And just to have people appreciate, why do we have a seven-day week? Why do we have a day of rest? Why is it the first day of the week? I mean, all these things are massive testimonies uh, to Christ and his resurrection. And we really should use it all. And at the right time, you can't throw it at a person immediately, all of it in one go. But, you know, to plant the seeds in conversations, it's should get folks thinking, especially people who are very secular and uh, non-Christian. I came from a totally secular family. Every member of my family came to the Lord ultimately. It took time. I didn't go about it the best way at first. Um, as the baby of the family, you can imagine they were not too thrilled when the baby of the family came telling them how they all need to be born again and believe in Jesus. And, and they all... Christmas 1977, every member of our family got a Bible. You could just see the eyes rolling as they opened the Bible. Ugh, a Bible! <laughs> but you know, I've still got those Bibles. I mean, my dad, my mom, I mean, they kept them to the end of their days and it, it made impacts. So, I mean, they, they did get converted ultimately. It took years in some cases. But, uh, you know, even if you're the only Christian in your family, persevere. Uh, never give up. Because... God's word is faithful, it's powerful, it'll never return void. Good. Any other comments, observations? I think it's, I think it's neat how when Jesus was on earth, he's healing the blind, and in kind of a spiritual way, he's often healing the blind still today. Yeah. It was just kind of neat that he's kind of keeps doing that. Yes, well, I, I mean, I think in my life I was totally spiritually blind. I mean, imagine singing so many of the great hymns. Do you know, there were times that at at Baptist Theological Seminary, we had to, every day, put on academic gowns for chapel. Uh, by the way, we had to, for every lecture, have a tie and jacket. It had to be white shirt, by the way. 
white shirt, black tie, uh, black jacket, uh, grey or black trousers, and um, that was every day for every lecture, and for chapel every day you wore robes. Uh, and we'd sing hymns every day. And there's sometimes they'd get to him and say, because you had to sing to a whole hymn book. Does anyone know this hymn? And do you know, pagan background, though I may have been convert only a couple of years, I often knew the hymn. And sometimes I sing it for the first time as a Christian. And I would be absolutely staggered by the truths of these things. I knew it off by heart, and I had never understood the meaning until now, sing it as a regenerate person. So, just amazing things that I found myself sometimes with a bunch of religious folks, some of them brought up in church, and I was the one who knew that hymn. Because our upbringing in Rhodesia was singing hymns at school, in assembly. And to think I could have sung those hymns without recognizing the spiritual realities, and, and you know, blessed out of your socks, brought to tears, repentance, just standing in awe. There were times that uh, I know in the army, in the front of the chapel, I was spread eagle in the front of the chapel lying face down before uh, the presence of God, just absolutely overcome by the sense of the presence of God, his holiness, my sinfulness, his grace, and uh, because of a hymn that we had just sung or a psalm we had just read. It's just amazing, but I was exposed to those things before and it just went over my head and I couldn't see it and I couldn't hear it and I didn't know it. And so if people don't know what regenerate or born again means, I mean, in my experience, that was it. I was confronted with Christian truths and I didn't even recognize what it was. But when God reached down and touched me, it suddenly just, wow, all open. So imagine that, that you can know things off by heart and still not know it.